I think the biggest Iron Fist I dealt with was in DC. I think once you start dealing with like two, three Michelin stars, the stakes are high. I mean, you don't want to be the reason that you the restaurant loses a Michelin star. I sure as hell didn't want to be that reason. And they make it very clear, like, you don't want to be uh, that reason. Everything, a veiled threat. Yo, yeah. I mean, everything was perfect. You know, every, someone was over your shoulder at all times. I mean, that was like the biggest under the microscope for sure. All right. And just like that, we are back with Mind the Growth Podcast. As always, I am uh, Chris Kinghorn. I'm Eric Hoffman, and today we have a special guest, Ben Wald, executive chef. Is that the That's proper correct. title? I guess so. Reserve? Yeah, and Cafe Monarch. Yeah, perfect. So we, as you know, have a love for food, cuisine, fine wine, good drinks, and I think Ben's going to be our driver today to show us all of those in detail. Absolutely. Ben, thanks for having us. We appreciate it. Absolutely. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to have you guys in our space. Yeah, thank you. You want to launch us off, Chris? Yeah. So, Ben, do you mind just giving us a little bit about your brief history for those watching who are, you know, who's Ben, who's Monarch, what's going on? Yeah, absolutely. Personal history-wise, I grew up in Buffalo, New York, was there until I graduated high school, uh, went to Johnson & Wales University in Providence, Rhode Island, graduated with a bachelor's degree in culinary arts. So are you a Sox fan? Are you a Yankees fan? I'm a Sox fan, but that's due to my dad growing up in Boston. So my whole, you know, this <laughs> okay, is where it, okay. it gets complicated all there. Right, but a Red Sox fan, we'll keep it like that. I, I'm, I'm a Sox fan, so I had to just clarify that. Kind of bring that <laughs> Clarified, up. Red Sox fans, we're good there. <laughs> perfect, perfect. Uh, like I said, I went to school at Johnson & Wales, graduated with a bachelor's degree uh, I then, uh, after that, uh, studied in Paris at the School of Alain Ducasse. He's wow. the second most decorated Michelin chef. He's the only chef ever with three three Michelin star restaurants, one in London, one in Paris, one in the south of France. I mean, really an epic chef. Uh, I then moved to Washington, D.C. and worked at three Michelin star at the Inn at Little Washington for about two years. COVID happens. I was furloughed. You know, the world blows up. No one knows what's going on. There's zombies running around. <laughs> Um, and my dad lives here in Scottsdale. So I got in my car, I drove to Scottsdale with no plan, no job, no apartment, no clue what was to come, um, just to hang out with my dad. Uh, two weeks after living with my dad, if he ever sees this, I love you, but I didn't <laughs> want to live with him any longer. Uh, so I'm like, you know, what should I do? Should I get a job that's going to benefit my career or just something to get me out of his place for a little while? Right. I decided to do something that would benefit my career or at least try to here. Uh, so I was hired here at Cafe Monarch as a sous chef. Okay. Um, about three, four weeks after I started, we had the space across the street. They asked me if I wanted to open up reserve, a new concept. I said, yes. I'm sorry eight. to interrupt. Was that in the cards initially or was that uh No, that was, never, that was never in the cards, at least maybe in the back of their minds it was, but gotcha. never... Uh, for me, I was hired simply as a sous chef, and I was happy with that at the time. Um, so I then took that position. About eight months after that, they asked me to do uh, both operations. So now that's now I oversee both Cafe Monarch and Reserve. So how quick does it traditionally take somebody to go from a sous chef to an executive chef? Of two restaurants. Yeah, well, just one. Two It's just all circumstantial. Uh, I just, you know, I always say, like, being successful is half luck and half skill. You know, I had the skill, the luck just happened that we had the space across the street and 
you know, I just capitalized on the opportunity. Well, the fact that you, you got in your car in the beginning of COVID and, and took the risk and came out here, that's, it's an incredible story. It, I mean, it really is. A, I mean, I had no idea. I mean, okay. just no clue. I thought my whole thing was like, you know, maybe I'll come to Arizona and then I'll go up in California, work at a couple, you know, Michelin spots or, you know, move somewhere out West. I didn't even think I was going to stay in Arizona. Right. All right. So with your history with Ducasse's school, there's folklore that French kitchens are run in a very specific way and with an iron fist. How did you view that when you were in France and how did that shift, if at all, when you were in Washington and here? I think the biggest iron fist I dealt with was in DC. I think once you start dealing with like two, three Michelin stars, the stakes are high. I mean, you don't want to be the reason that you the restaurant loses a Michelin star. I sure as hell didn't want to be that reason. And they make it very clear, like, you don't want to be uh, that reason. Everything, a veiled threat. Yo, yeah. I mean, everything was perfect. You know, every, someone was over your shoulder at all times. I mean, that was like the biggest under the microscope for sure. Gotcha. When I was in France, it was more of like the schooling atmosphere. That was tough, but I mean, nowhere. I mean, there wasn't Michelin stars, you know, being played with. Sure. And who is the head chef at the inn? Uh, his name is Patrick O'Connell. He actually opened up the inn 40, like I believe 43, 44 years ago in the middle of nowhere. I mean, there's more people that work at the inn than live in the town of Washington, Virginia. There's only 150 people that live in, in the town. I mean, it's it's so small. There's no stoplights. The closest grocery store is 30 minutes away. I mean, it's... How many Michelin stars? Three, uh, right? Three. Yeah. three. How long has he been? How long have they been a three Michelin star restaurant? The Michelin Guide went to DC in 2016. Okay. They were rated two stars for the first two years, and then they were promoted to three and have retained three since. Were you part of the experience uh, at two, or were you? I started the month after they got their third star. Okay, I would just be kind of curious to see what that transition would look like <laughs> to go from two to three. I mean, just taking it to the absolute next level. I wish I was part of that two-star team because, I mean, that is really an impressive feat to go from two to three stars. I mean, that's right. like the whole holy grail is three Michelin stars for any chef. I mean, it, there's only 120-odd, somewhere 123 stars in the world. Right. Yeah, so, which I mean, uh, is a good segue. When the hell is the Michelin Guide coming to Phoenix? <laughs> <laughs> the Michelin Guide goes to cities with epic food scenes. It's not like, you know, it can't just be me, like, doing awesome right, right. food or, like, you know, someone around me doing awesome food. It has to be like a whole city that's putting on an epic spread. So what are you doing in the Phoenix ecosystem to help bring that attention <laughs> here? What is, is that something that you are interested in getting active in? All the, all the chefs out here, out there, come on, come on out to Phoenix and Scottsdale. <laughs> yep. Let's create a, an amazing food I scene. think it's vibrant, but I'm subjective. And, it, and I do too, but, you know, we both are. I mean, there's cities like Boston that I'm surprised right. don't have it. I mean, there's like, totally. you know, bigger food scene cities that don't have it. You know, maybe in the next 10, 15, 20 years, it, you know, it comes out here. But at the end of the day, that's not what I'm in it for. Sure. Would that be a cool accolade? I mean, of course. Right, of course. right. And um, speaking of Phoenix in general, when you came here, did you go around to different restaurants to check it out? How did you land on Cafe Monarch? So I actually landed on Monarch because I ate here. So yeah. my dad moved here in 2017. So I'd periodically visit and obviously me being a foodie, I've gotten him into the food thing. Um, and he was living on 68th and Thomas, I mean, a mile down the street. Mm -hmm. So we came, we just came for dinner. Me, my dad and his girlfriend sat right over here at this table, had an awesome experience. I never thought I'd work here. 
you know, but then fast forward, I moved here and I was like, you know what? We really had a good time at dinner that night. Maybe that would be a good spot. Maybe. I mean, I didn't know. Sure. I had, I had nothing else on the table. Yeah. I mean, I just was going for it, going for it. And it's definitely top of the, I mean, in restaurants wise, this is one of the top, top. Totally. And it's not the top in my opinion. Since you've been here, do you have any other, maybe a top three list of places you like to go? When I go out, I tend to go out to like have a good time and not necessarily analyze food. Uh, I analyze food every day. That's like my living. So I tend to go out, you know, and have a few drinks. Try to and, turn it off. Yeah. And, and enjoy myself. <laughs> enjoy it, yeah. Nice. Makes sense. All right. Um, with your position here, obviously you're in fine dining and there's lots of different styles of restaurants, but in general, a 20,000 foot view, where do you see the f- food world and the food business going in the next few years? I think there's two ends of the spectrum for that. Everyone's on like the sustainable kick. And I think that's huge. And a lot of people need to do that. But there's also like that niche market of the super fine dining. And what people don't realize, I think, is like in order to be super fine dining, it's very hard to be super sustainable. I mean, if we're looking for the perfect plate, there's a lot of waste involved. You know, we do our best to limit waste and, you know, use the waste product in other ways. But I think those are like the two things are like, you know, if you're a smaller scale restaurant being sustainable, that's how, you know, getting sustainable product, keeping your product, you know, margins close. But then when you get like that super fine dining and you're charging a premium, people have an expectation of what's on that plate. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. And what do you think in general makes a restaurant fine dining? How do you, in your mind, classify that? Is it technique? Is it cuisine type of cuisine i think fine dining is experience driven okay uh you know it has to do with the food it has to do with the service the plateware the ambiance the glassware you're using i mean you know if you're sipping nice champagne out of a plastic cup that's not fine dining you're drinking awesome champagne but i mean that's (laughs) not what fine dining is so it's the whole experience like is the food epic are the drinks epic is the service like holy shit like this is the best service i've ever received these people are taking care of us they seem to actually care about you know how we feel about the food. That to me is what fine dining is. And as the executive chef of both Cafe Monarch and Reserve, what's your role in looking at both back of the house and front of the house? I oversee all back of house operations. The front of house, you know, if I have an opinion, I'll make it known to Christian, who's the owner and general general manager, and, you know, he'll kind of take it from there. But as far as back of house operations, that's that's you your know, that's bread my, and butter. Yeah, that's my bread and butter. <laughs> so menu development, scheduling, hiring, firing, cleanliness, sanitation, you know, the way we have like standard procedures for certain things. Those are all things that I will oversee. Cool. And in terms of fine dining, do you have an opinion on what the most overrated and the most underrated ingredients are today? Overrated and underrated. Interesting. Um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, ben I don't also know. goes as Truffle Daddy every once in a while. So. Truffle Daddy? Is very, that very the much I mean, so a very big truffle guy. So. I think when it comes to the fine dining, like you need, like we're saying, that bread and butter. Like I love truffles. I love caviar. I love foie gras. Like those things like will always be a mainstay, especially on reserves menu. And also, I mean, we offer most of those items on a Cafe Monarch's menu as well. But as far as underrated things go, I don't know if it would be necessarily an ingredient, but rather technique and how you go about using ingredients. I mean, I could hand you the best steak in the world, but you could hammer, you know, you if you don't know the technique of how to cook it, the steak's no good. Right. Sure. You know, so underrated to me is is the technique of cooking. And what technique would you say you, moves, you use most often? 
It all depends on the ingredient, but it's just having that background knowledge of how to use whatever the ingredient is that you're using. Let's use steak as an example. Sure, how would you I mean, cook the best steak in the world? Again, I mean, it depends on what steak you're using. At, at Reserve, we use A5 Wagyu, which is known to be like the best steak money can buy. Highly marbled, highly fat. I mean, which we're talking. Perfecture. <laughs> we use the we use Miyazaki okay. Miyazaki. Um, That's a good one, <laughs> which is a good one. That's like the most known, along with Kobe. Yeah, but the Miyazaki to me is is the primo one. Nice. And we're using the strip loin over there. I mean, we'll sear it on both sides, baste it with butter, thyme, and garlic, and I mean, and that's it. Yeah, that's it. At Cafe Monarch, we do use a sous vide technique, so okay. we'll sous vide, sear, baste, and then sell. Okay, gotcha. So we, we've talked about Michelin star pretty frequently so far. Um, I'm assuming most people listening understand what a Michelin star is. For those who don't, Ben, can you just give a quick summary of kind of Michelin, the star of the process, the difficulty? kind of what Yeah, looks absolutely. Like? Absolutely. So Michelin is what everyone is, is the tire company. So you can go, you can get new tires and be recommended for a very nice dining experience <laughs> all within one company. Right. So the whole thing was like Michelin wanted you to buy their tires and then use them. So they released travel. a guide yeah. of restaurants so that you would travel with your tires. Okay to go to these restaurants. It that's sense, where it all I had started. No idea, so. Yeah, so that's where it all started. It's a Paris-based um, guide, at least for the food. And it started all in Europe. And then I want to say in like 2013 or 14 came to the States, but just New York City and then has since spread a bit. Now the Michelin guides in New York City, DC, Chicago, and all of California. Okay. And they release a, a rating system, one, two, and three stars. Um, one star, I believe they're thing is good food of its kind two stars is worth a detour and three stars is worth a special journey yeah. okay so those are like their one-liners based on their stars okay yeah and they have random inspectors who go into these restaurants unknown it's not like hey i'm with michelin right they don't want people knowing that who they are so they get like a the experience that you would get or so maintaining consistency obviously then is extremely important that's the whole thing is like you could be the michelin inspector or the person at that table or the person right. at that table um, and then they release the guide based on service aspects, food aspects, and this and that. But it goes, like I said, from the one star to the three star. With the one star not being easy to obtain, I mean, right. the one star is still tough to get up to the holy grail of, of the three stars. And is it true that there has to be a certain amount of courses in order to qualify, or how does that work? I'm not exactly sure of their... Criteria. qualifications yeah i'm right. not and i don't believe they want it to be no. exactly known but <laughs> yeah, i i sense. don't know but every every dish has to be if you've got let's say eight dishes or eight eight um you've got a, a whole experience of eight different plates if one of those does not meet the criteria you're toast okay all right yeah that's tough you're <laughs> no toast. pun intended yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it could be a good toast it could be, yeah. it could be a very good toast yeah. it could be just a little bit we off. got good butter too yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to ask you to put your business hat on. So there, in my mind, there's different ways to be successful in the food world, sure. and there's different types of businesses when we're talking about restaurants. So being at the fine dining end, how do you in 2021, which we are right now going into 2022, believe that a fast casual restaurant would be best suited to reach success financially? a nicer sit-down restaurant and a fine dining restaurant. How do those compare in your mind? Sure. I mean, to me, right, I'm putting my business hat on. At the end of the day, a business is to make money, mm -hmm. right? So in my opinion, and it shows, you know, around Scottsdale, you can make money here doing the fast casual up to the fine dining level. It's just figuring out your market and how to attack and how to make money in that 
sector of the restaurant world. Sure. And do you, do you have an opinion on ghost kitchens and where those play a role? I think it plays a role. It's just not my, you know, it's just not my jam. I'm more of the, you know, I'm the hyper fine dining at some point, you know, maybe I would do, you know, more of the fast casual or the casual sit down because I do enjoy that. But as far as the ghost kitchen goes, that's like out of my realm. That's not my, that's not my department of restaurants. Totally. Um, Where do you see yourself with Reserve and Cafe Monarch or outside of this world in the next few years? Do you have specific goals in mind to reach here? Do you have other concepts in mind in general? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can go on and on about that. But as far as Reserve goes, that's kind of my baby as I open that, uh, along with my chef de cuisine, David Brito, who's been with me since the start. I mean, I think our goal with that is to... So Reserve has been, sorry to interrupt, uh, Reserve's been going, this is your second season, correct? This is our second season. So those of you who don't know what Reserve is, it's a 14-course tasting menu. It's all located out on our back patio, so we closed for the summer as it's so damn hot in Arizona. (laughs) Um, We opened in October of 2020. Um, and then went all, uh, up until May and then closed for the summer and reopened uh, October 1st of this year for our second season. We like branded it as a season two and just revamped everything. You know, we only kept one menu item from last year and everything else was new. And how you know, did you decide changing of the menu? What, what was the process that kind of went into that deciding what you were going to keep? And I guess if you only kept one, we only item, kept one you? item as it was like our Bread and butter, uh, if we're going to keep saying that. Uh, it was like everyone's favorite, so we kept it. It's a sweet corn pudding topped with Maine lobster tail and Parmesan. I mean, I've just that. It's incredible. Yeah, just a, I mean, just a hit. Um, and then everything else, you know, David and I kind of sat down and brainstormed what items we wanted to have on the menu and then right. kind of built the menu um, around that. Did you find David or did Christian find David? Where did he come from? Um, So I was aggressively looking for a sous chef at the time for over there. And it's tough to find people with hyper fine dining skills in in Scottsdale and Phoenix because there's only a handful of of restaurants. And David was working at Kai. One of the best. Um, Yeah. Another one of the best. I mean, the only Forbes five-star restaurant in the state, which is pretty impressive. Mm -hmm. Um, And he was- Forbes, if you're listening- Reserve Cafe Monarch. Yeah. <laughs> um, They're coming for you. Yeah. And he was furloughed along, you know, with me and everyone else. And I had a bunch of ads up. He reached out and it just worked. I mean, he's a younger gentleman too. I was kind of looking for someone who fit like my my vibe and it just worked out. And he's been with me um, from the start. And I mean, he's an incredible talent and incredible asset uh, to myself and to the team. And how old are you now? I'm 24. Wow. I'm right. 24. Yeah. It's a great story. Or the age of 25. Yeah, that's not too bad. Yeah, lots of years ahead. So uh, another segue, past reserve, have you thought about anything in the future, whether it includes this or not? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at this time, I'm invested in Monarch and Reserve. I mean, I'm trying to take Reserve to places that hasn't been as it's so new. We're really trying to like make a name for itself. Cafe Monarch, at least in the Valley, has a name for itself, and most people knows know what Cafe Monarch is. Yeah. When I started at Monarch, I you know I said to the owners, "This is a machine that runs well. I just want to help it, you know, run a little bit more efficiently." But with that, that's the machine that I built or helped, you know, helped create. So now we're really trying to make a name for Reserve because we, I mean, the space is epic, the food is epic, the service yeah, is epic. I and mean, we'll get some shots later too, yeah, so the viewers can kind of see. Um, kind of just switching back to to the menu again, um, 
because of the world that we're living in with COVID, um, was there difficulty? Did you have to design the menu in any way, shape, or form based on some any sort of supply chain issues or restraints, or was that a factor when you guys were creating the menu? Um, I work pretty closely with a lot of uh, high-end purveyors, and luckily with the Beast of Cafe Monarch, right. it, it helped reserve, you know, forge relationships a lot easier as we spend a lot of money with a lot of people, and people want our accounts. Maintain the relationship. Yeah, yeah. so Absolutely. I mean, there's like some small supply chain issues with, you know, having trouble getting this, having trouble getting that, but nothing that was like detrimental to our kitchen. Sure. Um, travels. Where have you been overall in terms of food cities? I know you've been to France. What would be your number one go-to city in the world to travel to eat? That I haven't been to? Either you I've have done, or haven't. Maybe, let's some, try both. Sure. So I've done like a decent amount of travel in Europe. I mean, I've been to a lot of France. As I When I was in Paris, I went to the south of France, central France, north France. I've been to Barcelona, London, mm -hmm. Rome, Florence, a lot of northern Italy. As far as places that I've been, I mean, I'd love to go back to Paris because I was a student. I didn't have a ton of I didn't have a ton of coin then, so I was sure. falling on a budget. I'd love to go back and, you know, spend some spend some money. As far uh, as far as places in the states, I mean, I don't think anywhere comes close to New York City. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, the food scene in, in New York City is epic. Um, but I would agree. Back to eat since you've I've done I've been I have a lot of friends in New York, so I right. periodically go in and. Have a good time. Nice. Uh, to say the least. As far as places I haven't been, I'd go to Tokyo. Number one, Tokyo. So my top two is Tokyo and Copenhagen. I've been I've been to both and they are bar none the best cities I've ever been to in yeah. the world. I think Copenhagen right now, I mean, is probably Insane. the top dog. I mean, Noma yeah. just got rated number one right. on yep. San Pellegrino. I mean I got to meet my boy over there. Uh Renee Redzepi. Renee, yeah, Mr. Renee. Did you have a, you have a <laughs> yeah. brain fart? Yeah, 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 a little second. bit of a brain fart. I came in for the same. Yeah, thank you, man. That was a big introduction. There. Yeah, so quick quick anecdote. My wife and I went there two years ago in 2019 before COVID, and we got tickets to their summer season when it was all, the whole the full vegetable menu. And so we show up. I, I brought my camera because I like to take photos sure. when I go out to nice places. And we walk in to get seated and Renee is just standing at the pass and just welcoming guests. So I was like, hey, Renee, what's up? <laughs> He's like, oh, hi. That's awesome. And I'm pretty sure he thought we were like famous bloggers or something. Uh -huh. We were <laughs> dressed up. My wife's very pretty. And uh, so he just followed us to our table. <laughs> and awesome. He's like, how's it going? What's what's happening? Can I get you guys anything special? And we talked for like 15 minutes. Awesome. And then two days later, we went to... Um, uh, Hija de Sanchez. It's a taco spot that one of his sous chefs at Noma opened in Copenhagen. So we went there because we were familiar with it. And him, his wife, and his kids were standing right next to us in line. He said hello again. He's like, oh, I'm seeing you everywhere. Uh -huh. <laughs> That's my... Uh, Famous chef story. I don't. Hopefully he's I, watching. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> I don't really get starstruck with celebrities or famous people like that, but uh -huh. chefs, I I have a soft spot for. Yeah, I mean, he's. I mean, that his story is pretty incredible as well. I mean, they were rated you know best restaurant in the world three four times in the early two thousands, and yep. then to come back and do it again in twenty twenty one is is really impressive. Wild, Absolutely. yeah. And the people that have come out of his restaurant are 
the best chefs in the world. Yeah, when I was in school, I applied to do an internship there. <laughs> yeah. And it was an unpaid, unhoused internship. So, I mean, you're not getting paid. You're not getting put up. No, but there was you, this whole application process. I like, I straight up wrote an essay for an unpaid, unhoused internship. And they're like, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, wow, I can't even go work for free. I'm like, that's insane. I would bet they get thousands oh, I of mean, applications. I can only imagine. Yeah. I can only imagine. I feel like it's him and maybe Thomas Keller that have the most alumni that have turned into three Michelin star restaurants. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially in the U.S., I mean, Thomas Keller's reach is far and wide. Yeah. Uh, so that's interesting about your travel spots. What about types of cuisine? If you had to eat a specific type of cuisine? I love eating Asian food. Yeah. I love eating Asian food, mostly because I don't cook it. You know, I deal with a lot of the European ingredients, a lot of European techniques, but I don't, you know, cook. I don't deal with a lot of the Asian uh, ingredients. Nice. All right. Do you have any, are there any chefs out there that you feel that you either look up to or maybe potentially model your technique on? Or is that, have you kind of taken a few and made them your own? How does, how does that look like for you? A lot of my background is heavy French. I mean, the Inn is an incredibly French restaurant. My studies in Paris, obviously. And then culinary school is heavy French technique uh, is taught. So that's like where my heavy background comes in. So I'll like keep up with a lot of those chefs, but not like, I've been trying to shift and like forge my own path of like what my cuisine is, what my food is. Right. Do you feel like um, you've done that with reserve? Is it kind of a statement of who you are and kind of what you've you've become as a chef? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's a statement of what that team of who that team is. Right. Um, it's not just me. It's not just, you know, I don't run a kitchen as a dictator. People don't want a 24 year old, you know, dictating. Right a kitchen. That's not how you have a successful team. And at the end of the day, I'm only as successful as the team at both, you know, restaurants. I can't run the show. I can't cook everyone's food here. I can't cook right. everyone's uh, food there. So I think that menu over there has really forged into what that team and who that team has become. What does the team look like for, for the reserve team? Sure. So I oversee that operation. Then underneath me, we have Chef David, who, like I said, came from Kai. He's the chef de cuisine. So with me running back and forth between the streets, that's like he just focuses on reserve. Okay. And then underneath him, we have a slew of cooks. Um, right now, we're running three cooks and a dishwasher. Okay. So that's just a team of five um, all day over at reserve. Give us an idea, or I guess the listeners and viewers an idea of the main differences between executive chef, chef de cuisine, and sous chef. Sure. So it really all depends on like how big the operation is. Uh, like last year, it was just like me and then David was my sous chef as I was like mostly at reserve. And then we had two cooks um, underneath us. But as the operation grows, there's like normally an executive chef who will oversee whether it's one, two, three, four, five restaurants, however big the empire gets. Okay. And then like chef to cuisines at each restaurant where that's their focus. Okay. That's their focus. So he's like my point of contact. If there's issues going on over there, I'll go straight to him. Um, but as far as, yeah, so there's the executive chef who oversees the chef de cuisine, who's like of that restaurant Focused, and then yeah. the sous chef who would be that right hand man. Their of, assistant. Of yeah. The, yeah. And, um, with regards to your day to day now as executive chef, what does that typically look like? Sure. So I work like six and a half days a week as it stands right now. Thanks Reser for cutting us into your yeah. half day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Reserve is open four of those days. So the days that Reserve's open, obviously Monarch is open seven days. So I'll bounce back and forth wherever I'm needed. You know, during the prep day, I might be at Reserve for more of the time. I might be at Monarch. And then for service, I'm kind of bouncing back and forth, just helping out where need right. be. And are you actually cooking or are you just 
making sure everything's in order and making sure everyone's got consistent cuts. <laughs> it just it just depends on the day. I'm never like we're, I very rarely like work a station where like I'll come in prep a station then work that station. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll very rarely do that. If there's like call outs or like you know stuff is crazy, then I will. But it's it's pretty rare that I like am cooking your steak. Sure. Uh, rather overseeing like the steak leaving, the salad leaving, the third course scallop leaving, just making sure that everything's running smoothly. Cool. And because we live in 2021 and there's more of a focus on alternative ways of eating, what's your viewpoint? And do you even allow for modifications on the reserve menu for like lactose intolerance or gluten-free things of that nature? At Cafe Monarch, we'll do any, we'll take any dietary restriction at reserve. We're a little bit more picky as Mm -hmm. that menu is really a beast and there's only five people sure. um, putting it out. Over there, we'll do a vegetarian menu, a gluten-free menu, and no nuts. Okay. Okay. That's it. You know, there's so no, no other- di- No dairy-free. Dairy-free, we will not accomplish. We just won't. <laughs> it just, it. at the end of the, of the day, what we want to put out is the most epic experience, and we feel that a dairy-free menu isn't what our best work. For, yeah. yeah. Gotcha. And the best part about that is it's like, if you want to eat dairy-free, we have another beautiful restaurant that- you know, you can right. do so. What are we right across the street? Right. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, we don't feel as if like we're turning people away, rather shifting them to the, what suits their yeah. needs. Cool. Makes sense. Uh, let's put food aside for a second. What other hobbies and interests do you have? How, I love, I mean, I'm like consumed by the food world, uh, by the, I mean, I love drinking wine. I love learning about wine, learning about food. So I wine. Like I love going out and drinking wine, having some cocktails, enjoying my time with friends. You know, it's been nice. This is the first time I've lived in a city with a family member since I was 18. So it's nice that I'm in the same place as my dad. So I try and get with him when I can. Um, but I'm pretty consumed. My yeah. life is is consumed in this world for sure. Do you have any siblings? I do. I have one sister. She's a school teacher uh, in, D- in the D.C. area. Nice. Yeah. Uh, wine. What's the last few bottles that you've really enjoyed if you can remember uh i took a trip to napa in july that was a pretty epic experience i went with the owner we have a a lot of connections out there due to the volume of sales that we do in wine so i mean it was pretty epic like we were drinking camus with the owner i mean we were at opus one with the director of their sales i mean that was probably like the most memorable wine trip i've had as of late in 2018 i traveled to bordeaux when i was in France. I mean, that was epic in terms of like being in a new spot. I mean, being in Bordeaux, I mean, that's like the holy grail of, you know, Mega, red wine. Right. Yeah. French or California? Money aside, <laughs> I tend to go old world and, yeah. and drink the European. Do you think that comes it. from your experience? Your experience? Yeah. yeah, especially with the education. Maybe it is. Maybe it's like the nostalgia thing of like, if there's like a nice Bordeaux, like I'll tend to order Bordeaux. Right. Oh, you know, over the, I feel like people drink like Bordeaux or Burgundy if they have like French red, red wine. And I like tend to go Bordeaux. Bordeaux. That's fair. Yeah. But I also love champagne. Like I love champagne. What's, what's, I guess, going back to the last few bottles of champagne that you can remember, what's been a favorite? I got unbelievably lucky probably two or three months ago. And we had a gentleman in who was kind enough to share Krug, uh, Clota Ambonet, which is their highest Bottle. I mean, on our list, we have it for like 5,500 or 6,000. I mean, something outrageous. And I was lucky to share a glass of that. I mean, that was epic. I think once you start dealing with those wines that are so expensive, it's almost like the clout of it. You know, it's like, holy hell, like I'm drinking this bottle that's 
you know, $6,000 or five or four, right. or whatever it is. It's like, wow. I think it's like you feel a lead or it's like you're drinking the hype, you know, behind it. And if my research serves me properly, you are doing a tasting menu with Krug, correct? Yes. It's on, it's on the plans um, to do like this epic uh, 12 course menu. Krug every year does, they do like a collaboration with themselves of a certain ingredient. And this year it's onion. Hmm. Okay. Um, yeah. So we're on the plans to do a Krug and onion dinner. That's all paired with. And that's at reserve. That's at reserve. Yeah. That's only going to be 10 to 12 people. I mean, we're talking like 1500 a person. That's a, that's a big boy. Yeah. Dinner for and sure. is that how you drank the $6,000 no, bottle? We just had a gentleman in who, who was kind enough to share. I just got, <laughs> I, str I mean, I just got lucky with that yeah. one. I That's awesome. I just got lucky with that one. Cool. Any final thoughts on uh, what you want to share with the viewers, your goals for next year? Uh, yeah, goals are high. I mean, we want to push Monarch to places it's never been. Like I said, it's been a machine that's running you know, for now for eight years under this ownership, you know, here we do that four course menu and then that reserve. I always say, you know, my one liner for reserve is it's just Cafe Monarch on steroids. Yeah. <laughs> so if you want some steroids, go over to reserve. If you want the four course, please come to Cafe Monarch. Nice. Perfect. Well, we really appreciate your time and you spending some time with us telling us about your journey. Yeah. And uh, we're looking forward to season two of mind the growth podcast where we'll have you back absolutely i look forward <laughs> to it thank you awesome thanks, thanks man. man appreciate it